First Thessalonians chapter 1, if you know, we've been going through the book of Acts. As we get to the book of Acts, we go through various, uh, we get to various books. If we remember in Acts chapter 16, 17, Paul is starting his second missionary journey. He's already gone and visited a bunch of churches, and now he's going to go again to go see how they're doing. Well, on the second missionary journey, he goes far beyond where he went before, a little further beyond, and now he's going into Greece. And so as he goes into Troas, as he goes over into all these places, he's picking up Timothy, he's picking up Luke, there's some other people who are going along with him, and now they are venturing further into the heart of the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. There are synagogues there as the people of God, the Jews, were spread out all around the place from um, various situations, but here they are in a city called Thessalonica. And if you remember the city before, he was in Philippi. They did not like him. He had to leave. And he came to Thessalonians and he taught for three Sabbaths, Acts 17 teaches us. And then as he's talking for three Sabbaths, some of the Jews there came to him. Then a great deal of the, uh, of the Gentiles came to know the Lord. And then those people, uh, I think he went to was Berea. Then he, I'm sorry, then the people followed him again and started uh, basically giving him a real hard time to where the believers there said after three weeks, or it might have been a little longer, we don't really know, said, get out of here, you're going to die. So extreme persecution is popping up in this city of Thess- Thessalonica. They get kicked out. Paul leaves by night, goes on to Berea, gets in trouble, has to leave, goes to Athens, And so when he gets to Athens, he's just thinking two cities back a month ago or two months ago going, I wonder how these new believers are doing. I wonder, I've only had a short time with them, three, four weeks maybe, maybe a little bit more. And I left when they, you know, they were taking Jason out of his house and there was just a bunch of stuff going on. The city was an uproar. And it's not like they could call or send an email or text each other. You gave them the gospel, people are born again, and then you leave. And you're going, I wonder what's happening with them. I wonder if they're okay. What's going on? And so when he gets to, uh, I think it's when he gets to Athens, he sends Timothy back to find out what's going on. And he gets a report sometime later. And so there's a certain amount of time that has passed. And he hears about what, how they're doing. And they'll talk about that in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3. But as soon as he hears, he starts writing to them. He starts writing to them. And th- these are the words that he's talking to this, this new, young church in the midst of great suffering, great persecution. And he's just, he's reaching out to them. So that's the context. This is written probably around 5280. It's probably one of the first letters to the churches, we think. And so he starts out and he says, Paul and Silas and Timothy, obviously they knew who they were, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the definition of a church. Being in God, being in Jesus Christ. You don't have church any other way. Jesus says, I am the door You've got to go through me. You don't come to Jesus by going to church. You can find Jesus by going to church, hopefully, correct, because we are the church. 
But simply entering the building and leaving the building does not mean you are in Christ. You are in a building with other people. You come to God, you come to God through the person of Jesus Christ alone. You don't come to Christ through community by being a part of something. The community points to the door. The community points to the person. And that's what the church is to do. Is, is, and when people come around us, we, we are in Jesus. What does that mean? John 15. We're abiding in Christ. In other words, the same relationship that Jesus has with the Father, that close communion, that beautiful relationship between them, we now have with Jesus. And because we have that with Jesus, because he took away all our sins, we have that same relationship with the Father. He brings us in to the body of Christ, into the family you're in because of the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's talking to this church, to the church, which means the gathering, to the gathering of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what does he say? First of all, he says, grace and peace to you. Paul starts out in every single epistle except for the ones of the Galatians, grace and peace to you because he was really laying it to the Galatians. Grace and peace to you. He says grace and peace at the end of the book of Galatians. But this is the first entering, grace and peace. Grace, the common greeting of the Gentile, peace, the common greeting of the Jew. And also, as we've talked about several times as we go through Scripture, you don't have the peace of God unless you have experienced the grace of God. My relationship with Jesus Christ is not based upon works. What I have and have not done and all this type of stuff, it is based purely upon the grace, God's love for me. I'm so thankful that my position in him is not based upon what I do today or how, how great I measure up or I don't. But it's based purely because God said he loved me. God sent his son. God brought a salvation that was outside of me. I couldn't do it myself. And I simply said, thank you. I receive it. And I was forgiven, and I am forgiven. And I'm brought into this wonderful family, this wonderful body. I'm given this eternal life. And you might look at me and go, Matt, you don't really deserve that. And I would agree with you. I don't. It is purely based on his grace and his love towards us. And when I focus on that and not on myself and my own actions or inactions, the peace of God transcends my heart and gives me hope. It gives me peace because I know I have peace with God. Now, if we're living contrary to the Spirit, of course, we're going to have unrest in our hearts. Amen? And that's on purpose because God wants us to bring us back to the peace. Correct? But grace to you and peace to you, that's how he starts out, addressing this new church. And he goes, verse 2 goes, we, meaning Paul, Silas, Timothy, the bros, we all thank God for you, for all of you, and continually mention you in our prayers. You know, when people come to the Lord, sometimes, you know, uh, there's, there's so many things going on in, in, the, in the life of a church. You know, and Paul, I think, was a type A type person. You know, I mean, he was, I think he was pretty intense, don't you? 
I mean, that guy was a tense guy. I mean, he was constantly running around correcting, rebuking, exhorting, encouraging, praying for, crying for, pleading with. And you can see it's just like, it's like herding rabbits. I mean, there's just sheep, I guess. Brian likes to talk about sheep. You know, we're dumb, you know, totally. Get dirty, fall over, can't get up. Yeah, that's kind of like how I am with the Lord. We're sheep. And he's just looking and says, I want to thank, I just, when we think of you, I thank God for you. It is so awesome that God has saved you, that he has given you eternal life. And we need to remember that, you know, you know, just, just people who've recently come to the Lord. Zach, I praise God for you, thankful for you, you know. Tony, where are you, Tony? There you are, pointing you out. Tony, praise God, we're thankful for you. Rainy, the kids, man, we are thankful. And Paul's looking back at this new church going, I thank God for you when I think of you. And I continually mention you in my prayers. And notice it's mention when I think of you. And I'm continually just bringing your name up. Lord, bless that person. I'm thankful for him. And he goes, verse 3, we remember before our God, and this is what he's probably thinking in his prayers, God and Father, your works produced by faith. Three things here, if you're taking notes. Works produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. These three things come to mind when we're praying for you. And he starts off, the first one is, your works produced by faith. Now, we know we are not saved by works, right? Flip over to John 6, verse 25. Left to John 6, 25. Jesus had just uh, fed 5,000, went to the other side of the lake. They're following him. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, John 6, 25, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, because you saw the lows and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do, I'm sorry, what must we do to do the works that God requires? What are the works that God requires? And what does Jesus says? Jesus answered, the works of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent to believe on the one he has sent. And he talks about, and he will go on and say, I'm the bread of life. This is the work for you to believe upon. And then he says, they talk about manna, and he goes, feast on me. Believe upon, grab upon, feast upon. And many said, this is a hard saying. And they followed him no more, right? Later on, because he was, and he was saying, my body is, it's, it's sustenance for you. And obviously he's talking spiritually. And so the works of God, first of all, first off, is to have faith in Jesus Christ, to believe upon. And so that is what Paul is talking. When I think about you, you've believed upon God. But also that moves into a different realm because James 
has a fit. Remember James? Let's flip over to James real quick. James chapter 2, verse 14. So does this simply mean that I, am, I believe in Jesus and there's no life change, there's no fruit, there's nothing going on in my life? James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If someone of you says, Go in peace, keep born and be, and be well fed, but does not do anything about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is there's one God? Good, even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. James knows how to encourage people. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The proof that we are his is that we will look and act and be like Jesus. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. I believe in Jesus, but there is no fruit your faith is dead. There is no heart change. There's no outflowing of the Spirit in your life. Don't, don't be fooled. And so Paul is sitting here going, he's looking at your life and saying, man, I praise God that you believe in him and also it's evident. And he's going to talk about that in the labor of love and, and the hope here in just a second. But we were created, we're new, created new creations in Christ Jesus to do what? To walk in the works that he's prepared for us. To walk in those works that God has prepared for each of you. And my works are not going to look exactly like your works. But they're going to have the same, you know, family business, so to speak. They're all going to look like the Lord. And so he says, I, th- I thank God. I'm thinking of you. I remember your work produced by faith. Faith will produce good works. And your labor prompted by love. Now, the work produced by faith, that word work and labor, two different words can be used the same thing. Work, the one right there, is kind of like a a business. Labor is being hit. It's being pounded. It's being pummeled. It is a burden that is really heavy. Labor of love. Labor of love. And this goes to the definition of love in our culture. Love is so self-centered in our culture. It is a self-centered, man-made, Hollywood-endorsed, it's not love. Love is marriage. Love is a man and a woman sticking it out for better or for worse, regardless of what they get out of it, loving each other till the day they die. Love is loving your kid regardless of how, what they've done or not done during the day 
telling them what they don't want to hear, keeping no record of wrongs. We're going to read it just for a second. Love is, is selfless. Love is giving. If you want to know what love is, look to the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Love always has giving attached to it. And this is why as a body of, as the body of Christ, the earmark of a Christian should be giving. I'm, you know, not, I'm just talking about money, but I mean, giving our lives like Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. Giving our lives. That, that when we see a need we love, we responded. And it's a labor of love sometimes, is it not? It's a burden that's heavy. We just read about that in Galatians chapter 6. And bear one each other's burdens. What burden is that? A burden that isn't something I should normally be able to carry. It is something that is way beyond what I can do. And that is expressing the love of God, that labor of love when we come alongside and say, I will help you carry this unbearable load. I will endure with you through whoever, through who you are. This is not endorsing. This is not condoning. This is not enabling. It's love. God does not endorse our sin. He does not enable our sin. He does not, he says it exactly how it is, yet he loves us tells us the hard things, tells us truth, and yet gives us grace and opportunities to come back. Praise the Lord. Flip over to 1 Corinthians, left to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, just so we have a good definition of love working here forward. Amen? 1 Corinthians 13. Notice chapter 12 and 14 is concerning spiritual gifts. Right in the middle of all the spiritual gifts is the love chapter. Starting in verse 4, he says, love is patient. So love is long-suffering. Love is kind. It does not envy. Love does not boast. You know, one of the things I love is one of my pastors, Pastor Pat Kenny, um, and he would do a wedding ceremony and he would put people, the people's names in there as vows, you know? And they would read this. <laughs> Matt is patient. Ugh. I'm going to put someone else's name in here. Matt is kind. Matt does not envy. Matt does not boast. Oh, and how quickly I fall short of love. I need his love. Is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. How many of us are keeping records of wrongs? That's not love. That's law. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. Labor of love. Heavy sometimes. That's hard, isn't it? Who does that remind you of? Remind you of 
Reminds me of Jesus. Reminds me of the father dealing with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Why don't they get it? Why hasn't he killed them yet? Why hasn't he killed me yet? <laughs> love is long. He says, I'm abounding in love. I'm patient. I'm kind. I'm long-suffering. And he goes, thirdly, and I remember your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. Endurance inspired by hope. Some of us struggle with hope. I think a lot of us struggle with hope. And I think it really comes to bear when our bodies aren't working right, our emotions aren't working right, when relationships are not working right. And I would say that yes, we're living and we are working with one another and all those things, but my hope is not in you. It can't be. Your hope cannot be solely in me. I will let you down. I will fail you. I am a son of Adam. Now, I'm, that's not an excuse, but that's just reality, right? That's the reality of what we're living in. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is not in this economy. My hope is not in America. My hope is not that we'll have a rebound of some revival. My hope is not in this culture. My hope is not in this city. My hope is not in my health. And God graciously allows us to go things to where our bodies start to fall apart, where trials come in, where people break our hearts, where we can either despair because our hope it reveals our hope is centered in the world instead of the new hope that we have in Christ Jesus that is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ in the resurrection, the promise that my sins have taken away, that there is eternal life for me, that this is not it, that the Father has real estate for me somewhere else. He has an economy where what I value right here and now is asphalt in the new kingdom. Amen? And we can be a miserable people and struggle, and I do, I, do, I, I, I struggle with hope sometimes. A lot of the time. When my eyes are focused on this world here and now, it doesn't mean I need to be in a lotus position or, or you know, in some mountain removed from everybody, right? I, I couldn't even get into a lotus position. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about? When our hope is focused on eternity upon our Father, when our treasure is placed with Him. That He will one day wipe away my tears, that I will have a new body that will match my new spirit that He's given me. That's the hope. And when we begin to focus on that, our prayers change. Life changes. Circumstances change. We still pray for one another because we love each other and we've got these tents to deal with and there's circumstances and we're called to do that. Yes, that's good. But Lord, help me see this in light of eternity. Lord, help that brother or sister that this is probably not going to go away. Help them to, to see you in the midst of this to identify with Jesus when he stood there at the cross and he said, this is not going to be taken away, and here it is. 
And yet, I want to honor you in it. To endure through suffering, to reflect Jesus in our suffering. We're called to hardship right now. We're called to pain. We're called to suffering. We're called to embrace Christ now, to die to the flesh. And just as Jesus lived and suffered and died, so we live, we suffer, we die. And just as Jesus rose again, so we rise again, fully identified with Jesus Christ. And so church, this is not your hope. This is not your hope. He is your hope. And if that makes you sad, I'm glad. Because that's a sorrow you need to reconcile with your Lord that I need to reconcile completely. So powerful. So powerful of a truth, especially in the age of suffering. This church suffered greatly. He says, and you endurance, inspired. How do you endure? You're inspired by hope. In what? In eternity. You're like Abraham, who was not looking for the city here, but the city whose hand and whose maker is God, who built it. He goes, for, you, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, underline that, that he has chosen you. He has elected you. Oh, what controversy we have. This church had a split over it. The election of God. God chooses people. Did you know that? In scripture, you can't get around it. But what you will never find is Jesus with the woman at the well saying, God chose you. It is fully upon them to trust in Jesus Christ. You do not see that with the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. They were called to trust in God. It is upon us to put faith in Jesus Christ. And once we are saved, we find out, what do you know? God called us. He chose us. We chose him. What a wonderful thing. Do I understand this? No, but I find two parallel truths. God chose us, and we are called to choose him. Praise God. The Bible teaches both. Kind of controversial, I know. And so, yes to both parties. Let's move on. And this is how we know that God chose them. Verse 5, because our gospel, that means good news, came to you not simply with words, it wasn't just bouncing off, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. This is how he knew that they were chosen, that they were his, that they were in Christ. It's because these things were going on. The Holy Spirit was, was operating in power. Acts 1.8 says what? You will be my witnesses and receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And he's speaking in power. And there's something happening. How do you know that there's power happening? There's conviction in the heart. What does it say over there in, was it John 16, 8? When the Holy Spirit, when he, he comes, he, he convicts of sin, of righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He stirs our hearts. And so as we're reading the word of God, the gospel doesn't need any help. You just read it. You, you, you teach it. You say it. You explain it. You just 
put it out there. And I have no idea what is going on in the inner workings of your being right now, but I know that God is speaking to certain things within your life. The Holy Spirit is convicting. Oh, it's because Matt is, is this. No, it's just because of him. Romans 1.17 is what? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. The gospel, Jesus is the power. Unto salvation, first to the Gentiles, then to, uh, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And so I remember being a young and coming to the Lord and just kind of sitting under teaching and then there would be someone t- teaching about the lost sheep. And as they start explaining and just teaching, I'd realize I'm the lost sheep. I'm that person. I've been away. I'm running around in pig slop. And I didn't know it before. I mean, and when you're down in it, you, you don't... You, some, you just don't realize what's going on, but the Holy Spirit, he comes in and starts showing us who we really, he convicts us of our sin. Hey, wake up. Look what's going on. Come. The enemy says, look what's going on. You're never going to get out. Ha, ha, ha. Give up. Die. The Holy Spirit, he comes and he convicts to draw you to the cleansing. What happened when we see Isaiah sitting there and he had a vision, and he's before the Lord. And the train of his robe fills the temple. In the presence of God, in the presence of his word, what happens? I am undone. He felt his worth. And that's why I'm so concerned about the preaching in America, preaching of gospel that just tickles your ears, that tickles my ears and tells me what I want to hear. I don't need to hear any more great things about myself. I mean, I, I, encouragement is great, but I need conviction. We need conviction in our souls. And that conviction is done in a very beautiful way with the Lord. It draws us out. It makes us aware of who we are, but it brings us to grace. It brings us to the power of forgiveness. It brings us to a cleansing. It brings us to new life. Amen? I need that continually. It's not a one and done. I mean, yes, salvation. But I mean, the walk with the Lord, this word, his gospel, we don't stop. We continue in the gospel. We live upon the gospel. It's our new life in Jesus. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words. It's not just talking, but it's with power, the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And he goes, you know how we lived among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us in the Lord. That word imitators is, is mimic. It's where we get mime. Uh, that's not, you know, we, you became mimes. They just did what they did. And I remember coming to the Lord and, and going, how do I live this new life? I was watching the church. I was watching people. I didn't know how to be, you know, I don't know how to be a husband. I didn't know how to be, you know, all these types of things. I didn't even know how to be a kid. And I was just watching people and how they interacted and all this type of stuff. And I began mimicking them. I began, you know, acting like they did and all this type of stuff. Even theology and all this type of stuff. Discipleship was happening. And this is the thing. Paul's saying, you mimicked us. Who is he mimicking? Who are you mimicking? Who am I mimicking? Yeah, that's what I want. We want to be mimicking Jesus, amen? 
I don't want to be mimicking the world and people looking at me and mimicking the world. Oh, let the Spirit of Christ fill us. You became imitators of us and of the the Lord. For you, and this is how, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul suffered because of the gospel. They suffered because of the gospel. Jesus was the gospel and suffered. Do you see the chain? Who is mimicking whom? When things get tough, you find out what's really going on in someone's heart. You find out what they really think. You find out what their principles really are. It got tough for them real quick. And they chose to suffer. They chose to suffer. Why? Because Jesus suffered and he was their Lord. Where else do we go? That's the spirit working in them. And notice how they suffered. They had, in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul was able to be in a prison in a hard place for the gospel and be able to sing songs after his back was ripped open. Praise God. May we have that same spirit within us, the fruit of the spirit. And so you became a model, a, a print, a, a, a statue, so to speak, that everybody could look at to all the believers in Macedonia and Greek, you know, in Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your, your faith is gone and has become known everywhere. Oh, may that be the, place, the case here. When people go think of us and see us, they go, oh man, look at them. They shine Jesus. They're models of what it is to follow Christ, to suffer and to be humble and to love. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And they all tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is the definition of repentance. You want to know what the definition of repentance is to turn from idols and to start to serve the living and true God. We're called to turn from, but then we're also called to turn to. If you turn away from stuff, you're going to fill it with something. And this is the problem when people are trying to repent, when I'm trying to repent. I turn from this idol only to fill it with another. Anyone else? Anyone have that idol shifting problem? What does he say to do? They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We're to turn from our idols, but we gotta fill it with something, and God's design is to fill it with service to him while you wait upon his return. That's what faith is. You're living like he's coming because he is. And that's, we turn. Let the Spirit do that conviction in your heart and start to serve Him. Find ways. And notice, as you wait, there's patience involved. There's timing. There's God's plan involved. Notice the wait. It's not just an inactive wait. It's, it's like a waiter. You're waiting. 
You're waiting upon the Lord. You're serving the Lord and you're waiting upon the Lord. You're waiting for his return. That's what's in our focus. And notice what the Lord, lastly, we're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And lastly, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. That's why he's called the Savior. Any church that teaches that there is no wrath does not have a Savior. And so Jesus saves me from wrath. I like that. How many of you like that? I love that. I love Jesus because he saves me from wrath. That is where our hope is. It's in him. And so this week as we go out, as we're among the people, wait on him. Serve him. Turn from idols. Do the works of faith. Let the labor of love be a way of life. Be enduring. Be patient. Because in God's time, he will work it all out. Put your eyes upon the king. Put your eyes back on Jesus this week. You got troubles in your life? Go to Jesus. Start calling out to him. He's your hope. You got inadequacies in yourself? Start calling out to Jesus. Start calling out to your father. God, help me. Grab brothers and sisters. Start praying together. Put your eyes on Jesus together and let him restore you and fill you with hope. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, of course, and thank you for the word you've given our hearts. Lord, this church suffered. And Lord, we're going through sufferings, uh, it seems like, that are a little bit, there might be a spiritual edge to them, Lord. And so, Lord, we come before you as the shepherd of this flock. And we pray, Lord, that if the enemy is involved in any of this, Lord, and we ask that you would uh, give him his walking papers and that you would give reprieve into the lives of your sheep, that we would uh, be thankful for you. But Lord, in the midst of the suffering that we're experiencing of various kinds, not even for our faith, Lord, just because we're human beings walking around usually, would you help us to take that and to identify with your son and to put our hope in you? And Lord, if it's your will and your grace that you would heal us, we thank you for that. But we all know we're headed towards dying. And so Lord, in that we ask that you would give us the heart, the mind, the spirit, the strength of Jesus Christ. And we want to praise you for the goodness like healing Mike. And we just give you all the glory and honor. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.